Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and joining me today is Dr. Candace Nicole Hargens, an award-winning assistant professor of counseling psychology at the University of Kentucky, where she studies sex, social justice, and leadership, all with a love ethic. She is also the founding director of the Center for Healing Racial Trauma. Dr. Hargens is the creator of Allied Plus Accomplice Meditation for Cultivating an Anti-Racist Mindset and the Black Lives Matter Meditation for Healing Racial Trauma, which has been featured in the Huffington Post and Blevity and used by universities and private practices across the U.S. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, Therapy for Black Girls, Women's Health, Good Housekeeping, and Blavity. So let me just give a warm welcome to Dr. Candace Nicole to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. Welcome, Dr. Candace Nicole. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you for inviting me on your show. Well, thank you so much. For agreeing, you know, as I mentioned to you, we are genealogists and family historians, Mm -hmm. and we have been uncovering all kinds of information about our ancestors. Some may not be as good as we would want it to be. We have, in some cases, uncovered lynchings, uncovered Mm -hmm. families that were forced to move out of their homes. All kinds of discrimination practices. And so I want to just start off with the question, what is race-based stress? Yeah, so I study race-based stress and racial trauma. When I think about it is the experience of enduring cognitive, affective, and somatic responses to racism. So that might manifest based on the intensity of how the racist stressor is or the frequency. It can be a bunch of really small things that erode at you from the inside out or one or two major things that really traumatically impact your experience. And so when you are constantly, because racism tends to be a constant 
presence in the lives of people of color, when you're constantly exposed to it, it can really erode you from the inside out, physically and mentally. So when you say it could erode you physically mm-hmm. and mentally, what what are you telling us? I mean, how does it actually affect the body? Because physically oh, yeah. and mentally, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think people miss the fact that the physical impact of racism is real. So when you think about things, I'll speak about black culture in particular, because that's what I study. When you think about things like high blood pressure and cardiovascular disease, that's very often an outcome of racial trauma. And when you think about diabetes, and when you think about PTSD and depression symptoms, sometimes those are precipitated by racism. So many people miss that, and they think that when you experience racism, all you get is hurt feelings, but very often you'll see negative health consequences. You'll see negative psychological consequences in people who continue to be exposed to it. And your coping mechanisms in some ways can help if you have a really developed repertoire of coping, which includes resistance strategies and community support and therapy and all of these pieces. But it's not enough because we need people who enact racism to really start to shift so that they can prevent it from happening in the first place. But when you talk about prevent it from happening in the first place, what about Mm -hmm. people you may say, oh, he's a racist? Mm -hmm. They immediately get on the defense and say, I'm not a racist. So what, what are we really talking about? Because let's face it, we see racism all over the place. Everywhere. I think there are a lot of people who believe that they're not racist because to them what they hear is you are the worst person in the world, terrible, unredeemable, and you are evil. But what we know is racism is so common and so many people are socialized into racism. White people are socialized into a racist system and then socialized into behaviors that perpetuate racism day to day that they could treat you nice and at the same time perpetuate things that are racist or enact policies that are racist. So most people have no idea what the real definition of racism is when they exempt themselves from being called racist. And they do that because of their own discomfort and stress intolerance with being called racist as opposed to their willingness to be empathic to the pain that they have caused and responsible and accountable for the pain that they've caused. So if they, they're not quite there where they want to at least say, yes, I'm a racist or I have racist behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the meantime, things are happening. And yes. so when we talk about uh, your center, for example, the Center for uh, Racial Healing, what do you do? to assist people with various interventions to help them understand, uh, engage them in really creating an anti-racist mindset, if you will. Mm -hmm. So I tend to work with organizations and not individuals because I think on the individual level, people need to really receive therapy to unpack that. And so I recommend that as a part of my institutional or organizational recommendations. But when I work with organizations, I start with 
giving them a shared language of what racism is so that they can be clear about how it's defined and how it shows up in their life and how they enact it. And then I take it beyond just learning about it because people think, oh, racism is just a function of ignorance, and when you know about it, you'll do better. But what we know is insight doesn't lead to behavior change unless you have something experiential. And so I give people um, the experience of mindfully noticing their emotions and their somatic responses when we discuss racism, when we talk about the heinous impact of racism that you described above. We're talking about lynchings. We're talking about bombings. We're talking about terrorism in the United States that's been enacted by racism. And so we talk about those things very directly, and then I have people check in with their bodies. How is your body feeling as you discuss this? How are your emotions as we discuss this? Because they have to be attuned to that in order to do any real change. So making that, making that attention focused on the experiential is how I help move their racial identity development. So a theorist named Janet Helms developed this model of white racial identity development, and she has several stages that there are different ways of being white. White people are not a monolith, and that there are anti-racist ways, but people have to get there by their will and their ability to tolerate the emotion of what it means to be socialized in racism and to connect with empathically people of color but also to let go of their own guilt and shame around it because their guilt and shame often is the thing that paralyzes them or creates that defensiveness that you talked about earlier. But how do they get, I mean, you talk about guilt and shame. So mm-hmm. is the guilt and shame where the denial comes in, I'm not a racist? Mm-hmm. Or yes. Is, is that what it's all about? <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that there are some people who have so much guilt and shame that they deny it because if they deny it, then they don't have to tune into those feelings of guilt and shame. But there are also people who, who do not believe that racism even exists. They don't believe that there is inequity. They don't believe that there's discrimination. And I think that is a level of denial that goes beyond, it's more delusion, if you will. And so they're, they're operating in a delusion because they have a hard time connecting with other human beings. They have dehumanized people of color in such a way that they don't see their pain as even worthy of consideration. And, you know, when you just said that, I immediately had this flashback to mm-hmm. Mr. Floyd. Mm-hmm. And and I could just, I mean, just thinking of how he was dehumanized. Yes. and. Every time you looked on television, there he was, his Mm -hmm. life, right before us, just slowly leaving. And so how do you get people to the point where this dehumanization stops or there's this recognition of this dehumanization? I think it's a collective effort, and not everybody wants to get there. So you start with the people who are willing, the people who are willing to go into it, even if they get it wrong, even if they'll struggle through it, but they still have the willpower, the motivation to try to unlearn and undo and cultivate an anti-racist mindset. So work with those people is what I do. People who are not willing to get it, I try not to engage 
And I try to ask the other white people who are willing to do that work with their cousins and their parents and their grandparents and their family members and to do that work because they have not used, like you and I, the cognitive resources, the emotional resources to just exist and survive and thrive in a racist system. So they have the extra energy that it will take to work with, empathize with, and stay in community with their white peers. And I ask them to do that work. And I work with the people who are willing and ready to learn and ready to try something new. So that's a big challenge, though, because, mm-hmm. you, you, you know, you talk about working with groups. And you have mm-hmm. associations, you have societies, you have all these different people. So someone in that group will have to take the risk and say, it's time for us to make a change. Yes, they sure will. And usually and they've called me some somebody support. in there has done it, right? So if they call yes. my organization, somebody in the group has already done that. Usually it's people in leadership, which is nice because then they have the power to say, we are going to do this together. You don't have to like it, but we are committing to this. And so I think Mm -hmm. that's the benefit of that, where you have people who have some leadership skill and some power saying, I'm invested in creating this environment to be anti-racist. Let's call in an expert. And not everybody's in agreement, but they also want to keep their job or they also want to remain affiliated. And so are willing because the leaders have asked them to be willing to at least listen. And then, you know, the work continues after that. That's right. Now, I want to take Mm -hmm. it to another place. I read to you a headline that was in the Washington Post today. I guess it wasn't really a headline, but it it was in the newspaper. And it was the Alabama governor apologizes to the 63 church bomb survivor. Alabama Governor Kay Ivey on Wednesday extended a sincere, heartfelt apology to a survivor of the 1963 Ku Klux Klan bombing of a black church in Birmingham, an act Mm. that shocked the nation and helped speed passage of the landmark Civil Rights Act. My question to you is what role does apology play when we're talking about creating an anti-racist society or whatever we want to call it? Mm -hmm. I think it depends on who you're apologizing to and for what. Because I love to use the theory that there are apology languages. So what apologizing means to me might be different than what apologizing means to you. But I think for there to be movement, you have to at least endorse some of those apology languages. So you have expressing regret, like, oh, man, I regret the way I hurt you with this. I feel badly that I hurt you. Accepting responsibility, saying I know I did this, as opposed to pretending like you didn't know, like I made a choice in this, or even if it was unintentional, being mindful about you're responsible for the impact, even if you didn't have an intent, that's another language, making restitution. So when we talk about reparations and some groups and organizers are really 
sold on that being the type of apology that people of color and black people in particular need, that's a making restitution apology type where you pay for, you compensate the people who have been victimized and injured by the racism and then genuinely repenting, that is saying, I will never do it again. Here is how I'm going to work on myself or work on these policies or work on the system so that we don't continue to repeat these offenses. And then there is finally requesting forgiveness. Like, will you please forgive me? I would love to have your forgiveness so that we can move forward. Those are the five different apology languages. And Gary Chapman created this when he was talking about actual familial relationships, but it applies to this as well, because if I say I want an apology for the terrorism that black people experienced in the United States, I might mean making restitution and accepting responsibility. So for me, I appreciate accepting responsibility. I know I did it. I was wrong. I need to hear that. That works for me. For some people, it's like, if you're not about to pay for the damage, you can keep your words. And so I think They have to ask the community that's been harmed what apology looks like and issue an apology understanding what is valuable to that community. And when I think of the apology that I mentioned to you earlier, what happened was uh, the uh, victim of the bombing's attorney sent a letter to the governor on the anniversary of the pomp of the bombing, requesting a formal apology from the state mm-hmm. of Alabama and restitution, mm-hmm. and she got it. And although, I mean, you you want to say it's a long time coming, but mm-hmm. it did come. Yeah. But when I think and that about meant something to it, her, it meant a lot to her. So what mm-hmm. you're saying though is that if you're going to uh, express regret or Mm -hmm. accept responsibility, you also need to understand the people that you are responding to or reacting to. Yes, absolutely. Because what might work for me, as you said, may Mm -hmm. not work for somebody else. Yes, and I think that happens across generations, around community types, around socioeconomic class and You know, so people have different needs and what an apology means to them. I might be in a financial or economic or educational position where I don't need restitution. I don't need to be financially compensated because I've been able to obtain the type of success and financial stability that I want, whereas some communities continue to be economically ransacked by racism, and they need that restitution, and it's not taking handouts, that's a form of apology. That's right. That's right. Now, mm-hmm. I want to mention to you, and this is a comment that I heard uh, a genealogist, her name is Sharon Morgan, and she described the black experience in the U.S. as horrific. Mm. And that the question was, how can we move the past to a place of healing when we are still continuously bombarded with racist acts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
I think that's a good question. I'm really, I'm really still sitting with it, honestly. I think that it's a long game strategy. And the way I understand human behavior is that it takes time to change, even though I may not be able to tolerate how slowly change happens. So there are certain things that catalyze change to happen faster, but even with that, change takes a lot of time at the individual level, so it certainly takes a lot of time at the systemic level. And you can see incremental change and hold on to those beautiful changes that have happened. So when you see several states creating anti-racism task force, and that's never happened in that state's history, that's an incremental change, and you have to appreciate each step. Now, if you want more change and want change faster, then that means you take more risk. And everybody Mm -hmm. has different levels of risk tolerance, what they can give up and sacrifice or invest in making change happen. And so depending on your strategy, you may say, I'm willing to risk it all. I'm willing to risk my life. And so you enact change at the level where you're willing to risk your life. There are three levels of risk. There's life risk, livelihood risk, and luxury risk. Some people are willing to give up their life for this work. And we know them by name, people who have been assassinated, people who've been on the front lines risking their bodies and limbs to make sure that we see the type of change that we are working towards and have been working towards for generations. Some people are willing to risk their jobs, their livelihood, their ability to provide resources for themselves and their family. And so they're at work making institutional change, speaking truth to power with their superiors, their supervisors, their colleagues, all of that. They're doing that work. And some people are willing to risk luxuries, and that doesn't mean they're not painful. I want to always name that. But, like, the luxury of being comfortable, the luxury of feeling safe, some people are willing to risk that even though they're not risking their their lives or their livelihood. They will say something when they're at Thanksgiving with their family member who says something racist. They will correct them. So we need people who are taking risks at all those levels to see that type of change. And when you mention those risks, it makes me wonder whether organizations are are at that point where they're willing to take the risk to say Mm. we're going to have a diversity and inclusivity committee. We're going to Mm -hmm. now examine what's going on. Part of that risk may be that they may lose members. Yes. Yes. So the question and they is, need to be are willing they to risk willing that. to do that? Is that where mm-hmm. you're going with the risk? Yes, and that's a luxury risk. Let me just be frank that losing some members, because I think people always overestimate how many members they're going to lose when they think about taking a risk. But losing mm-hmm. some members is not a life risk. You're not going to die if you lose some members. You're certainly not going to lose your livelihood if you just risk miss a few. Now, for some people, their job is on the line with that. But are you willing to risk it? Is it worth it to you? And I think that's a question that everyone has to answer individually. And then as organizations, you also have to answer that. Like, we're not willing to risk this number of people, but you don't know how many you're actually going to risk. You just fear that. And that fear can sometimes really stop people from making that move. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it sure does. So when you go into, I mean, a, a company contacts you, 
and they're saying, look, we we really feel we need to we need to move to the next level. Is there some kind mm-hmm. of survey or something you give to them? Just how would you work with a company? Yeah, I don't do a survey. I do more of a interview. So in our mm-hmm. conversation, I'll say, this is what I offer, and what is it that you're looking for? What's important to you here? Sometimes I'll push back and say, you might want to go a little further. Or sometimes I'll say, okay, that makes sense. This is, this is aligned well with what I do. And I give them option to have me create training that's specific to their group, or I can do the trainings that I have established already that have been, have been successful with other organizations, and they can choose to have me tailor one of those to their organizational needs. And from there, we decide how many sessions they need, how many people they want me to impact and set the fee related to that. And we do it. And afterwards, we check in. Was this successful? How are you going to hold people accountable to what they learned here, what this new information will do for your organization? And then we check in about it. Mm-hmm. Now, would you recommend, let's say, individuals decide we want to make a change, and they come mm-hmm. together. They really haven't had the skills to do what they want to do, but there's a mindset saying change must take place. What resources can they use to help them understand how they can be supportive and have this anti-racist mindset as part of what they're trying to do. So I think they have to start reading, listening to, and watching media that is designed and written for and by people of color. So listening to your (laughs) podcast, for example, listening to their colleagues of color, doing those pieces helps them get mentally prepared because they're no longer centering their own world experiences as the only truth, but they're now Mm -hmm. expanding their worldview, diversifying what they intake so that they can hear how other people experience the world. So when I think about organizations that, like yours, that might be predominantly white organizations, then the research they read is typically developed by predominantly white people. And the major books they read, the approaches they use might be developed by predominantly white people. But if they were willing to do this work in an anti-racist way, they would start finding, because they do exist, resources that are written by people of color. They would start listening to podcasts and media outlets and and following social media and all of those pieces because they were really invested in expanding. So, so what you're the, saying the is step. don't talk to each other, but start, you have to step out and you have to listen to what else is going on in this you universe. Know. And you have to have real relationships. You can't just go to, mm-hmm. they can't just come to you, Bernice, and say, hey, tell me everything I need to know, and they haven't established a real relationship with you. They need to be able to say, hey, I'd like to take you to dinner. Let's get to know each other. I'm willing to learn, and I want to also be in community with you. What do you need from me? Like to have a real human relationship as opposed to just coming in to extract knowledge. Not only that, 
But when I mention organizations and they, let's say they want to have a diversity group, if they bring in just one one group of people, meaning if they bring in all black people but they don't bring in the white mm-hmm. people, you're still not having that dialogue and that relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because black people can tell you what you need to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it's almost like we can't get into your head. Yes. So <laughs> this is a tough this is a tough conversation, isn't it? What makes it tough? <laughs> Well, I'm thinking of just the whole trauma, Mm -hmm. racial trauma. And I could say to you, I've experienced racial trauma, although Mm -hmm. you are an African American, so you could probably say, okay, I can understand that. But if I say it to (laughs) a a white colleague, will they understand what I'm talking about? I think it's depending on whether they're willing to understand it or not. So if the white colleague Mm -hmm. says, why are you making this about race? That's a person who is trying to foreclose on the conversation and not have any empathy for what you just described to them. But if it's a white colleague who is more developed in their racial identity, they have more advanced racial, white racial identity, they will say, wow, even though I have never been through and never will go through that, I empathize with the pain you're describing. How can I show up for you and have your back? That's what a person who is white would say to you if you described having racial, racial trauma if they had an advanced racial identity development. If they had an earlier mm-hmm. one or a less mature racial identity development, they might say, that doesn't exist. We're all the same. I'm colorblind. Yes. And what's with this whole colorblind thing? <laughs> I don't know, honestly. <laughs> like, we know that doesn't exist. Like, you see people. You can, you can see Human beings have differences, and there's nothing wrong with having differences. It's just about how we respect them. So let's talk about uh, just coping. And, and I mentioned that uh, the whole Black Lives Matter meditation for racial, for healing racial trauma. What is this? Mm-hmm. What role well, does a, meditation play for healing racial a, trauma? It was a meditation I created in 2016 following the murder of Philando Castile where his girlfriend and baby daughter were in the car and watched him. And I was just in pain. That for me was traumatizing. Even though I don't know them, just watching it and hearing about it for me felt so painful. And I thought, you know, I'm a psychologist. I have the skills to use healing modalities like meditation to help people reduce stress, why not use it here? So I created the meditation because I needed it, and then I figured perhaps some of my colleagues would benefit from this themselves or be able to share it with clients, so I shared it out. But I include mindfulness, affirmation specific to the black experience, and meta, which is loving kindness meditation, in it so that it kind of acts on different aspects of our consciousness related to racial trauma. So the mindfulness piece helps you notice yourself without judgment. Notice your body and what your body's feeling. A lot of people feel tension in their neck. Sometimes you might have headaches or your stomach drops when you experience racism. Your heart starts racing. 
you have a hard time breathing, might be crying, shaking, you want to notice what's happening in your body. And so the mindfulness helps people be aware of it and not try to suppress it or judge it. And then it leads into the affirmation. So the affirmation piece is really unpacking these negative messages and stereotypes we've received as black people. So not having to be the sole representative for your entire race, you know, Mm -hmm. understanding your inherent worthiness and brilliance, understanding that your emotions are valid and that you don't have to pretend like you don't have emotions to preserve other people's comfort. So those affirmations are in the middle, and then I end it with loving kindness, which is wishing black people joy and wellness and love and peace and safety. And so you end with that echoing throughout that Black Lives Matter as an affirmation of the value and beauty and inherent worthiness of black life, not more worthy or more valuable than other lives, but inherently as worthy and as valuable as every life. That's such a powerful, powerful statement for people to make about themselves, the Mm -hmm. loving kindness. Uh, You're beautiful. You're worthy or as worthy. Mm -hmm. And for people to to say that to themselves, to even say that to others, I really like this whole this this meditation. Um, mm-hmm, I know you. that the coming to the table group offers uh, med- guided meditation. Mm-hmm. For those of you who are not familiar with this group, uh, they do have a Facebook group coming to the table. But just to start off, as you mentioned, notice yourself as far as mindfulness. And mm-hmm. just walking through this process, it's, it's, a, it's a healing process. It's a calming process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, it helps calm your body by just noticing it. Yes, it does. I, I think I'm going to have to just start talking about that on all of my shows now. <laughs> <laughs> so that so that we could so that everybody could get to that point because you know mm-hmm. there's so much tension so much tension in the world right now we're dealing with the pandemic we're dealing with the presidential debate we're dealing with white supremacy there's so much and then yet we have to survive we have to get up mm-hmm. every day we have to mm-hmm. continue day. moving on How do we then prevent all of what's going on from actually paralyzing us? You know, I believe in taking good care of your physical health and mental health because in a lot of ways racism can, like I said at the beginning, erode you from the inside out, and so you have to really strengthen Mm -hmm. our body and mind on the prevention side. You can't stop racism as one single person, but you can take good care of your wellness. I talked. I talked to a few of my, my peers about this the other day. My husband and I found a used elliptical machine, and I said, baby, can you put this in the bedroom so that when I wake up or I'm ready to go to bed at night, I don't have any excuse but to get my butt on that elliptical machine and work out for 30 minutes because I carry so much stress in my body with the work I do. I said, this is not sustainable if I'm not taking better care of this vessel I've been blessed with. And I know the world and the society have so many racist, like, insults that happen that 
I don't want to carry that around and feel physically tired like I've been feeling, just exhausted and worn out. So I was like, well, let me take good care of myself. How you eat, what you listen to, who you're in community with, taking good care and being and loved by your family, all of those things are ways to, to take good care of yourself as a, as a black person, but also engaging in resistance. So speaking truth to power is a health, healthy way to cope, saying I will not be treated like this, I will not be disrespected mm-hmm. like this, is a healthy way to cope. And if you hold it in, sometimes that really can poison us. And so you find a way to say it that's not mean, but it's assertive. And, and getting into the practice of that so people know I'm not going to tolerate injustice. And that helps you feel like you have some control over and some contribution to this work. And it also takes you back to what are you willing to risk? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because if you're willing to say, wait a minute, <laughs> I'm going to speak truth to power, and I'm not going to tolerate mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, you have already taken a risk. Yes, you have. But yes, you for have. you, it may make you feel much better. Because mm-hmm. as you said, that that's that stress, that stress is eroding you mentally yes. and physically. Mm-hmm. And so people need to do have, something, yeah. Yes, you have, I mean, it's really empowering you to do something that maybe mm-hmm. you've sat around and you felt like the victim. Mm-hmm. And maybe the, the first thing to say is, I will no longer be the victim. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take control. I'm going to speak truth to power. If it means I'm yeah. going to exercise, I'm going to eat mm-hmm. right, I'm going to manage my blood pressure, diabetes, whatever yes. you need to do. This mm-hmm. is where this is where your strength comes from. Yes. And your power. I say this to people, Bernice, I say even if the only thing you do because that's all you can do is take excellent care of yourself, that's resistance. Because racism is trying to annihilate you. And so if all you can do is say, I'm going to go for a walk today and take good care of myself, that your existence, your life is a resistance in and of itself. Now, if you can do more, do more. If you can write policy, if you can run for office, if you can talk to your political officials and give them different perspectives, if you can speak up at work, if you can tell someone they are not going to treat colleagues this way anymore and say here is how we can learn to be different, all of those strategies. But sometimes all you have is to take good care of you, and there's no no judgment in that at all. Definitely no judgment whatsoever. So how can individuals or organizations connect with you if they're interested in learning more about the Center for Racial Healing? And trauma. So uh, this, it's the www.centerforhealingracialtrauma.com. They can go to that website and find out about our organization. If they're in Kentucky, we provide therapy services for people of color so that they can help them. Like that's another way, you know, to manage like the pain that comes with racism. So if they're in Kentucky, they can pursue those services. But if they want consultation, we do that throughout the United States and even globally. So they can reach out through that website. 
You can also follow it, Center for Healing Racial Trauma, on Facebook and Instagram to find our updates. And they can find me at drcandisnicole.com. Okay, Dr. Candace, do you have any parting words before we close out today? My, my parting words are to two reminders. For white people, it's important to realize that racism is not, in talking about racism, is not designed for you to feel guilty and shameful. If anything, it's to release you from having to continue to uphold systems that are harmful so that you can be a full human being and treat other human beings with respect. So we're not looking for you to walk around guilty and walk around shameful. We actually want you to understand and participate in this movement, collaborate in this movement. And for people of color, you are inherently worthy, inherently valuable, no matter what is said about you and what is done to you. You came into this world worthy, and you will leave this world worthy. So always remember that in all you do. Thank you. Thank you so much for those very powerful words. And everyone else, I want you to remember, your ancestors left footprints. They left Mm -hmm. all kinds of footprints. So you should follow the clues that are presented to you. And part of those clues will include information where you can see resilience. You can see power. You can see so much in what you have as a person but you must speak truth to power, as Dr. Yes. Candace Nicole just told us. So I look forward to all of you joining me next week. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Thank you, Dr. Candace Nicole Hargens. Thank you, Ms. Bernice. Thank you so much for having me. Mm-hmm.